Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast. It's the end of the year and what a year it's been. It's certainly been a very eventful one for me. My book came out earlier this year. I've been speaking about Work Life Flywheel a lot throughout at various company and industry events. And of course, I've also been writing my Future Work Life newsletter. Alongside that, I've been working on new business idea, which I'll be sharing more about with you in the new year. But for now, I just wanted to share my top five episodes of the year. And in today's episode, you're going to hear my conversation with Rory Sutherland at my book launch in January. So thanks as ever for your support. And I'll see you back here in January for a new series. Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and this week I've got a very special episode for you. As you probably know by now, my book Work Life Flywheel came out on the 17th of January and it was about as successful a launch as I could have hoped for. I was really happy to have got so much support from many of you listening and of course family and friends who shared the word enough to make it an Amazon bestseller. So thank you all for that. Um, if you have bought the book and you've enjoyed reading it, do leave me a review. I've already had some really great ones and it really does help to spread the word and likewise for this podcast as well. Now, today's episode, as I said, is a special one. It was recorded live at my book launch event a couple of weeks ago and it features a conversation between me and Rory Sutherland, the vice chairman of Ogilvy, a former podcast guest. I'm sure he'll be back on the show at some point soon in the usual format but for the launch event Rory and I sat down in a pub in Soho with a live audience to chat about the future of work and of course any conversation with Rory don't just stick to working careers you hear lots of interesting insights and anecdotes about all manner of different subjects so I hope you enjoy listening to that over the next couple of weeks we're going to be launching the new series of the podcast we've got a really interesting range of guests lined up everyone from entrepreneurs to investors and solopreneurs people who have skills and experience on getting things started and that's going to be the theme of how to take action get something up and running and start building so thanks as ever for listening if there's anyone else you think might be interested in the show do share it with them but for now let's get into my conversation with rory recorded the coaching horses pub in soho a couple of weeks ago in january 2023 a bit weird standing here i think really for me as an author i didn't really even i didn't literally three years ago didn't even write so um I mean, I could write, I've been able to write, but I didn't write regularly, you know, so, um, yeah, I, I didn't expect to write a book just over a year ago as well, so it was a, a sort of, a, a short journey, but also felt very long, as I'm sure Carly would agree, uh, while I was doing it, so it is really nice to be here and to see you, so thank you for coming, um, pleasure to have Rory here, Rory's been on my podcast, one of my, been one of my favourite guests, so it's a pleasure, and he was very kind to join me today. Pleasure, enjoy. Um, so yeah, in a minute we're just going to have a chat really about some of the themes that I wrote about in the book, which as you all know, because I'm sure you've all read it by now, because it's been out a whole week, um, it's partly my story of changing careers a few years ago and all of the things I've done since then, but also partly it reflects the fact that I started writing in February 2020 about the changes in relationship between people's work and personal lives, and then yeah. a month later... Everyone was kind of interested in that, as you can remember. So it's quite an eventful three years. Uh, the fact that I'm still standing here after having two kids homeschooled during that period and a toddler running around, we survived that, which is at least that's something. So, um, 
So yeah, look, I'm not going to carry on talking really very much, but I do appreciate you coming. I do appreciate everyone's support. So thank you very much. Well, I'm going to add one further thing, which is also a note of congratulations, having written a couple of books myself, which is it is a massive pain in the arse. <laughs> By the way, not weirdly the bit that you think is difficult, which is coming up with the words, but just the typing shit yeah. is a massive, unbelievable pain. So anybody who's actually got through that and come out the other side deserves far more credit than I think we usually get. Yeah. Yeah, and actually this bit of it as well, like the all the build up to it, oh. the promotion, the you know, podcast you know, Did you get into voice dictation towards the end? Because that was the only way no, I could do it. That's the shortcut I should have used. Yeah, which yeah. is that actually yeah. what, what you sort of do is talk crap and then edit it. Yeah, you know, yeah. After about 70, you know, 60,000 words, I was just so sick of the act of typing yeah, yeah, yeah. that anything was an improvement. Yeah. yeah. I spent a lot of early mornings typing and... Yeah. Uh, and I definitely do better work early in the mornings, but there's a knock-on effect. 4 a.m. starts, yeah, not very sustainable for very long. It's also a horrible thing because you never fully have leisure time because while the book's being written, there's always something you could be doing, yeah. which is writing yeah, yeah. the book. And you think about it constantly. Yeah. And, yeah. But still, we're here now. I did, on, I did enjoy it, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> So where, should we, where do you want to start, Rory? What should we talk about? Well, I suppose talk about February 2020, because interestingly what that means is that you, like me, were interested before the pandemic yeah, in reinventing to some degree both the world of work and attitudes to work yeah. and what might be sometimes, I think, a false dichotomy between work and life. Mm, absolutely, yeah. So, uh, what, so February, one month before the pandemic, mm. what, was the, what was the kind of um, epiphany? It's actually just starting to write. So, yeah. I, I, so when I left my last company, I've been doing that for ten years. I knew I didn't want to do that anymore. You know, you work for the, you know with the same people in the same thing for a long time. So I wanted to do something different. But actually, one of the main things was I just never. I, there's the work-life balance thing. I never yeah. ever felt like I could achieve work-life balance. And you, you, you're led to believe that other people have found this magic combination of this perfectly balanced work and life. And actually. I never did it, but I also realised the more people I spoke to, nobody bloody no. does it, nobody no. has it, and actually it, I, it's more unhelpful than it is helpful. Yeah, it's got the best intentions, but I think it puts a lot of pressure onto people, which is unsustainable and unattainable to actually I've got a theory it. that it might be a bit easier uh, in coming years, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain that later, on, yeah. which is that if it were when it's assumed that everybody works five days a week, okay, the, um, okay, I'll, I'll go back a bit. There's a, um, a, an evolutionary psychologist called Jeffrey Miller who wrote a book called The Mating Mind. He also wrote a book called Spent mm. about the sort of evolutionary psychology of consumerism and competition. And in that, he made a very interesting prediction, which I think came true. And he made the prediction kind of back in the early 2000s, which is that social media would change the nature of consumption because the kind of things you can show off about change. Yeah. Okay. So it would be... I, I don't know why this is, by the way, but if you bought a brand-new blingy car, you wouldn't put a photograph of yourself in front of your blingy new car on social media, whereas if you go to Machu Picchu, you'll blitz photographs of yourself standing in front of... I mean, why it's more virtuous to go to Machu Picchu than to buy a car, I'm not entirely sure. But he said... Basically, the, uh, the urge to sort of show off is innate and human, 
but the vehicles we choose and the currencies we choose to show off with change. Yeah. And he said, because social media makes your holiday effectively Instagrammable, whereas your car isn't, it will change the balance of consumption accordingly. Now, I think he was kind of proven a bit right. Yeah. And my point is that um, when everybody had the same working pattern, okay, the way you competed was to earn more than your fellow man. And... Uh, you know, it was assumed effectively that your five-day week was non-negotiable and therefore there was no status gain uh, available to having a more leisured life. Now, if people start effectively showing off that this week I'm working from Ibiza, okay, <laughs> and it starts... In other words, the quality of your life becomes, uh, in a sense, more broadcastable than the quantity of your salary. Mm it will lead to a kind of change in, um, a fundamental change in the way people think. Yeah. Because previously, if you think about it, you know, in a weird way, quality of life wasn't really negotiable. You couldn't really negotiate flexible hours. You couldn't really, the four-day week, everybody wanted one, but no one could ask for one because they knew that you'd end up getting paid for four days and working five. Yeah. You know, all those problems, I think, arose. And it was effectively very difficult to shift from that equilibrium until the pandemic hit. Now, there's a, there's a friend of mine who's just started a business called Assure, which is effectively what I call Airbnb, which is Airbnb for people working. Right. So the deal is you rent a house typically in Hay on Wye or somewhere, and it's got two workstations, high-speed broadband, Nespresso machine. Okay? And the whole purpose is it's, it's quite popular with property owners because, of course, it's, kind of out of, it's non-seasonal. Mm. And the idea is that people go away and work there for a week because it's nicer working there than just staying at home. Mm. And if those sort of things become status markers, then it might be a bit easier because suddenly people are going to be comparing themselves more on the basis of their quality of life or their work-life balance because it's now visible and yeah. it's negotiable, whereas before it wasn't. Yeah. And so I, that, that's my optimistic take. Yeah, and I yeah. think there's something in also, you know, for me... There doesn't have to be... Yes, we, we, we talk about boundaries a lot, rightfully, because work has impinged upon people's personal lives yeah. to a certain extent, or mm. at least you sometimes can't get away, which is more a reflection on poor leadership and management, frankly. But the, for me, actually, that scenario is interesting because it sort of, you know, what, what, what's it showing? It's showing that here's a different way of approaching my life. And at the same time, by the way, I'm delivering great work. And I think there's a, that positive relationship between work and life is probably something that we need to be reframing. And that's my problem with work-life balance was work sits over here, life sits over here, we can't possibly mix the two. And I just don't think that's reflective necessarily of people's reality. Yeah, I mean, I always recommend to people, when people said, do I go into advertising? I said, well, look, I can't really answer the question. But one thing I do think of as a positive of working in advertising is it's a job where doing almost anything in your spare time can make you better at your job. So yeah. I said, you know, if you're an actuary, you don't become a better actuary by watching a French art house film. <laughs> it's a really peculiar kind of film, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, um, but actually, if you work in advertising, almost any form of stimulus can actually lead to useful insights. Yeah. And that's the one thing, your idea of the flywheel, that you should think of them as actually complementary, whereas we tend to think of them in opposition, I think is a really masterful reframing. Mm. I think the whole concept of that flywheel idea 
which is that actually you need both. Yeah. Sort of yin and yang. Yeah, yeah. And actually it's the contrast between the two that makes things worthwhile. And by the way, there may be a there may be an interesting concomitant to this, which is that people in the middle of their lives work a bit less, but people work a bit longer. Because mm. I'm, I'm not totally comfortable with the idea of total retirement either, no. for that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just not sure it's good for you. Yeah. You know, to, you know, at the age of sort of, you know, 62 or whatever, to suddenly just completely stop work. What seems to happen is that everybody has a level of, of a kind of, uh, what you might call a, a, a preset level of neurosis. And what I notice is that people who... Um, pe- sorry, I'll just cut this one off. <laughs> sorry about this. Um, people, people, who, um, uh, people who leave work tend to bring the same level of kind of neuroticism that, to a boundary dispute with their neighbour over a fence <laughs> that they previously bought to negotiating, you know, the building of a nuclear power station. <laughs> you know, and it, it, it's, it's not necessarily healthy. You know, it's not yeah. necessarily healthy. Uh, you know, one, one of the good things about work is it actually does channel your worries, neurosis into mm. something vaguely productive. Yeah. And, I, you know, I always notice... <laughs> you know... It's a bit like that point I, the point I was made, which is that actually the great value of capitalism is quite often uh, nothing to do with what people think. It's that it gives, it, it gives slightly psychopathic people something to do which is actually vaguely socially useful. Because I was, I was working at WPP, I was used to say, what you've got to understand is that if Martin Sorrell had been born in the Czech Republic rather than the UK, he wouldn't have ended up running an advertising group. He would have been in charge of the secret police. <laughs> And the, you know, that, that fact that capitalism, even if it's weirdly pointless, you know, the alternative might be worse. It's always worth bearing in mind. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, uh, that, it's a good point about longevity as well, about work. I mean, mm. Linda Grattan, who's on the business school professor, right, really, really kind of perceptive insight about this, which is we've kind of traditionally had this three stage life where you spend yep. some time when you're young studying, then you work, and then you retire. Yeah, that was that was it. That was the pattern. And, and by the way, in the US, it's got weirder because uh, what's happened, in the, particularly if you look at the US, is yes, it, now in, in, to some extent in Europe, increasing wealth has translated into more vacation time, greater leisure uh, during your middle of your life. Just, I mean, Americans still have two weeks vacation as a sort of norm, okay, mm. which is barbaric in my view. Okay, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's simply ridiculous. Yeah, it is. Now, if you look at what's happened in America. Actually, increased wealth has translated into more leisure, but entirely at the beginning of life, where people spend seven years wanking around getting an MBA or, you know, you know, a, you know, a master's degree, and it translates into early retirement, where people piss off to Florida and wear ridiculous clothes, okay? But people in the middle of life are no more leisured than they were kind of 50 years yeah. ago. And so... You know, if we, one of the things I think that's a reasonable trade-off is you work for longer, but you actually have a bit more leisure yeah. actually at a time when you're well enough to enjoy it. I and mean, that's not an irrelevant point. But it always strikes me as a bit weird that if I go to Ogilvy and say, I want to take a year off, you go, oh, it's very inconvenient, you know, we'll have to commit to your salary, and oh, this is awful. Okay. But at least if I take a year off, I come back. A, I might have benefited from a year off, but B, all the sort of roller deck stuff and the contacts and the connections yeah, yeah. and so on comes back. Now, weirdly, if I say to Ogilvy, I'm retiring, I'm walking away, and by the way, you can never call me ever again, and everything I know and have learned is now inaccessible to you, they, mm. oh, that's fine, because that's retirement. Mm. Okay? Whereas if I actually take a year off and then come back, or six months off on sabbatical, that's considered more awkward than retiring. It's mm. kind of ridiculous. 
Yeah. And I think that's people are struggling to wrap their heads around that, aren't they? But the the, the fact is, we are going to be work, working longer, which is like why this idea of a multi-stage life mm. is a, be, is a better, better principle. It's like the, the studying for seven years in, in education. How how soon after leaving education are many of the things you've learned irrelevant because things have moved know. on so quickly? Mm. And this is a, so I saw the cadence through which you go through life and education and constantly learning and taking a sabbatical. You know, I think that's it probably will become more normal. But it's hard for people to wrap their heads around that. I had a friend who was head of policy for the Liberal Democrats, and he said there was something weird which he said he believed, and a lot of people believed, uh, but it was impossible to say. And he said, it's not a bad thing for people in their first eight years of their working life to spend a bit of time unemployed, a bit of time moving around, finding out what they really want mm. to do. Okay? Yeah. But he said, if you said that, this is the weird thing, is retirement is considered completely virtuous, whereas being... You know, not not working for three months in your twenties is considered a sort of heinous economic inefficiency. Yeah. But his argument was always, if we're being absolutely honest, you know, that period of sort of experimentation with the occasional hiatus mm. is probably beneficial. But he said, you're never allowed to say this. No. He said, you know, you have to pretend that everybody needs to go into a job, uh, you know, on leaving university, straight into a graduate job, find they absolutely love it and stick with it. You know. Yeah. Well, there's a whole thing about interviewing people, isn't there? Why are there gaps in your CV? Or why have you changed roles very frequently? Or why yep. have you decided to do one thing and then changed? But again, all of these things, I think, have become more normal because things, are shift, things shift so quickly and technology is making changes so quickly. Which, actually, on that, I've got to ask you about this. Everyone at the moment, is, it's impossible to move without people using chat GPT to do something. Yes. Like Jobs, obvious consequence of changes in it with AI and developments in AI. Lots of people talk about how automation is going to affect jobs. What's your, what's your view? And I'm more interested in how it affects creative, creativity and creative roles. I mean, is it as a complement or a replacement? What, what do you think about it? I, I wouldn't like the... I certainly would not like... The, I mean, and there's artificial intelligence and there's artificial inquisitiveness. And there's also the role for random happy accidents. Yeah. Okay. And... So using AI to generate possible solutions uh, seems to be worthwhile because it's expanding the possible solution space. And who knows, you know, it may come up with something you hadn't thought of, a bit a checklist. Okay? Allowing it to make the final decision is a completely different matter. Yeah. And that's where I think it gets interesting because um, uh, I think it can... I mean, I mean if, if nothing other than the power of, to some extent, randomness can be very valuable because you know there, there are great advertising ideas that happened entirely by accident yeah you know somebody happened to say something and everybody laughed and then someone goes no that's brilliant etc <laughs> um and so generally it, it's an interesting adjunct I mean, i'm uncomfortable with machines making decisions even to the point of speed cameras okay because i don't i don't really believe in context-free decisions Okay. Now, my view of a speed camera, just to take the view, is that uh, it should take a film of the offending driver, okay, and it should show it to a panel of three randomly, almost a jury, and the people go, okay, look, it's one o'clock in the morning, the guy's going 44 miles an hour in a 40 limit, uh, there's no one else on the road, or, you know, uh, that guy is clearly going at 50 to avoid that lunatic. So if you have very, very simple, clunky, context-free rules that are enforced by machinery, it's like, it's like living in a tyranny, really. Mm. Okay. 
And so, you know, I even believe that speed cameras, okay, you can use the technology to capture more bad drivers, but you also have the interesting question with speed cameras. I was the only person, do you remember Chris Hoon got caught on the M11? And his entire political career was destroyed. I was the only person who wrote in defence of him because I argued that if you looked at the number of people caught by that speed camera in Chigwell on the M11, which I think made more money than all the other speed cameras in Essex put together, okay, the correct conclusion to draw was not that, was actually that the speed camera was unfairly placed relative to the 50 mile an hour speed limit sign, which was about 100 yards ahead. Okay, yeah. you're coming down the M11 at 80. Okay, let's be honest. Okay, it's one o'clock in the morning. You suddenly see a sign that says 50. What you don't do is decelerate 30 miles an hour within 500 yards because it's an unsafe thing to do. So people slowed down to 60 because it's a sensible pace of deceleration, and then they got caught by the speed camera. Now the question is. Uh, there are two possibilities when a speed camera catches a lot of people. One, there are a lot of dangerous drivers in that place. Or two, you need to change the signage. Yeah. And it's not safe. It, it's called Wittgenstein's ruler, which is a question Wittgenstein raised, which is, uh, at some point, are you using the ruler to measure the table or are you using the table to measure the ruler? And so, um, I, you know, I, I'm, very, I'm very, very uncomfortable with automated decision-making that has a bearing on humans. Mm. This was one of the funniest moments of my life, which is having a conversation about a speed camera on the M11 near Chigwell <laughs> uh, with Daniel Kahneman, winner of the Nobel Prize. <laughs> uh, but actually, I, I defend this. because I, uh, One of the things I love is actually having incredible, incredibly trivial conversations. So I had, this, I had this interview. They didn't publish any of the stuff. But I had an interview for The Spectator with Slavoj Žižek, you know, the world's most eminent philosopher, a member of the Slovenian School of Philosophy. And 30 minutes of the call was about toilets. <laughs> and he has a whole thesis about why the Germans have those little inspection platforms. We must have 35 minutes. So there's a whole separate article waiting to be published, which is Slavoj Žižek on toilets. But actually, I, I defend this a bit because I, I, think, I think life's kind of fractal. And I think that there's just as much insight to be gleaned from looking at trivial things sometimes as there is from looking at kind of the things that are deemed important. Mm. And, um, but I mean, wor the, the working question was interesting because before... Um, I mean, and what, what's really happened with lockdown, is, uh, post-lockdown, is an informal form of trade unionism, isn't it? where it's made implicitly clear by the workforce that if you now demand we come in five days a week, unless you pay us a Goldman Sachs salary, we're going to leave. Mm. And it's interesting because previously... Uh, uh, so there's, there's a guy who ran an ad agency creative department. He said, running a creative department is easier than you think. You just have to know which of three things everybody really cares about most. And the three things were power, money and autonomy. And if you think about it, business offered quite a lot of opportunities for people who are power-hungry. It offered quite a lot of opportunities for people who are greedy, obviously. But actually, autonomy was a non-negotiable. It wasn't really a variable yeah. in your terms of employment. And because of lockdown, it now is. And undoubtedly, you know, I mean, Mark Reed, who runs WPP, he said, look, I'm not the kind of boss who wants everybody back in the office five days a week. He said, I'm also conscious of the fact that if I were that kind of boss, I wouldn't have any staff left mm. in six months. And the fact that actually having discovered, it, I think what's weird about it is that the journey into work on the train didn't seem ridiculous 
when it when we thought of it as being unavoidable. Yeah. And it was only when we realised it was optional mm. that suddenly we became conscious of you know what an amazing waste of time and effort it was. I mean, you know, uh, this is a really awful confession. Did anybody else? Part of the joy of working from home is that that tedious ritual, repetitive ritual, you have to do every morning, which, if you're a bloke, is shave, shit, shower, you know, shampoo, right, get dressed, okay? Suddenly you discovered you could do it at any time and in any order, <laughs> right? Okay, so you get up early in the morning, you put on a, car- a cardigan over pyjamas was usually enough for a video call, right? And you can get away with your first video call by just banging a cardigan on it. And then you go, oh, I think I'll go to the loo now. And then you go to have a video call, then you have some breakfast, then you go and get, you might shower and get dressed. Yeah. And the fact that actually, this is absolutely ludicrous, isn't it, in a way? But it, was, it felt actually incredibly liberating, the fact that you could just randomise your day life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, you've described my day there as well. Mm. Like, you, like you've got a CCTV in my house. <laughs> um, well, uh, we've, we've run out of time. I mean, I should typically in these situations, you uh, take it out to the floor and ask if there's any questions, so we might as well do that. Yeah. Go on, Dan. Um, while you're talking, I was just uh, thinking about... Well, the Amazon strike mm. this this week. Two two things, uh, two thoughts came to me. One is your whole discussion really talking about the top sort of ten percent of people who've got the sort of the education and the initiative to be engaged in what you're talking about. And in terms of actually, do you are you are you talking about the people who basically got to sign on for that kind of nine to five room coexistence in your fascism? My second question is, are we really reaching this land of Xanadu when one of these great tech companies are timing you when you go to a toilet break? Yeah. So th- those two things I was wondering about. Yeah. First and the second question. I think it's more than just 10%. I mean, I think... What, I mean, what, what would your... T- I mean, my, my take partly is that we don't know... It's very difficult to measure efficiency and effectiveness in the knowledge economy... And as a result, there was no experimentation. Now, if you're Amazon, you can determine someone's productivity levels to within sort of you know, three decimal points fairly easily because their job is, what, they, what their output is, is completely measurable. And they're, okay. the jobs, and they're the jobs that really can be automated because uh, they're, they're, they're almost, they're halfway there already because they... It's know, the algorithm. It's the algorithm, it? which is yeah. literally telling them what steps to take in the warehouse. You know, that's, half, that's halfway there. Yeah. So really, you're... Your world is about discussing but, it's, it's the creative economy. Well, this is the interesting question, I suppose, which relates mm. to the connection between automation and. So you mentioned context. You know, there's, there's certain things supposedly humans can do, and certainly they still can in relation to AI that's available at the moment. Creativity, however you define it, the yeah. context, critical thinking. These aren't these machines cannot do those things yet. Now the question is, if jobs are replaced through automation and technology. What new opportunities does that create for humans? And then what proportion of the workforce is able to be able to do those sorts of jobs? So, I mean, I think it's probably inevitable that certain jobs do just disappear because, um, who was it, Daniel Susskind, did you read his book? He wrote a really interesting book about, about, about this, where basically saying it, certain jobs will disappear and at some point we have to think as a society of changing the nature of 
work so that it may not even be that you're being paid to do what we consider work now but actually there's some and again it's universal basic income I don't open up that thing but there's there's a potential in the future where we do have to provide support for people who would typically in the past have done these manual jobs and they yeah. just aren't available anymore but I do think yeah it's bigger I mean that it's bigger than 10% I think we're talking about the knowledge economy growing as we have to as machines complement the sort of work that we do. It's also a disproportionately a London thing in the mm. sense that commuting in London is, a, is an order of magnitude more painful than commuting into a, you know, Newcastle. Okay, I mean, in terms of time, time involved, mm. okay. Um, uh, the, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting because I would also make the point that although it sounds like a load of white people in fairly well-paid white-collar jobs who don't have to get their hands dirty... Um, you know, getting bolshy about their conditions of work and actually they're really quite privileged in, in reality, all of which is true. I would argue that the, which is a bit weird, that, you know, from a Marxist standpoint, okay, the, uh, there have been an awful lot of moves which have favoured effectively capital over labour in the knowledge economy. I think an awful lot of activity in the knowledge economy is non-productive. I think it's arse covering disguised as rigour, actually. I think people are doing it effectively as a form of job def- defence and reputational defence under the guise of looking rigorous. Mm. Um, you know, they're, you know, a lot of market research is like that. It's not really done to learn anything. It's done so that um, if, if your product goes wrong, you go, that's strange, because the consumers told us they loved it. Okay? Right? And to cover your arse in the event of things going wrong. Um, and I, th- I think an awful lot... I think, but also, I mean, the, if you look at it, I mean, an awful lot of moves have turned... One, the extent to which people's identity is defined by their work has grown enormously. You mentioned this mm. a lot, probably excessively. One of the other things, which I, you know, now I'm not making a sexist point here, but it was perfectly possible, even in the working class in the 1950s, to maintain a household on one income. Okay? Didn't have to be the bloke, tended to be the bloke then, didn't have to be, okay? Then what happens is you have the option of the two income household, which is very nice if it's an option. Okay, because now you can actually both go out to work and enjoy what is, you know, pretty heavily enhanced quality of life. And then property prices cottoned onto this fact to a point where it's now almost unaffordable for a household to operate without both parties working full time. Now, okay, economically that's a huge gain in wealth. It probably manifests itself in an enormous increase in GDP and everything else. But it's a huge loss in discretionary time. And I, I think, I mean, what, what I think, it, okay, if you really believe in proper free market capitalism, okay, what it should be is, as far as possible, allowing people to arrive at mutually beneficial um, uh, arrangements uh, according to individual preferences, okay? Now, what I think is true is that people hugely <coughs> value almost more than money in some cases, not only free time, because standard labour economics was just leisure versus money. <coughs> I think people hugely value free when, free where, free why, in other words, you know, work that genuinely motivates them. And my friend also adds free who, if you can work with people you choose to work with and you like working with. All of those things massively contribute to your happiness alongside money. Mm. And... 
Um, so the question, of, I mean, I'll give you a simple hack, okay, which I think is really, really interesting. Some of you have probably discovered this by accident. Um, if you've ever worked um, from the West Coast to the States, say, but worked with a British office, you'll have discovered it anyway. But if you get up really early in the morning, you work all morning, okay, and then you take the afternoon off, and then, in the case of a single mum who's my PA, when your child's gone to sleep, you work from about, you know, 7 in the evening till about, you know, 11. Okay? You get more work done than you did previously, but it feels like you're on holiday. Just by dint of having the afternoon off, okay, and time just to pot around taking care of things, you get more work done, and actually you gain a kind of sense of freedom that actually is more valuable than money mm. in some sense. Now, if you can improve the value exchange between employer and employee by making part of the reward flexibility and part of the reward money rather than making it all about money, well, I think, you know, in a sense, you've got a win-win. Yeah. The employee benefits, the shareholders benefit. You know, actually, that's exactly what capitalism is there for, to uncover more intelligent forms of value exchange. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, capitalism, you once described uh, the macaron as the most extravagant, overpriced thing in capitalism, but that is actually what I've bought you. Yeah, Robin, macaron. Thank you, brother. And then the green ones. They are multicoloured. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Um, obviously, obviously, you can buy some books, even if you've already got one. They're, these ones are signed, so they're just much more precious. But thank you very much for coming. Thanks for all. That's a joy. Thank you very much.